Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And this episode marks the beginning of season seven of the podcast. No, I have not been on seven years, but I try to break up uh, the number of podcasts we've done uh, and try to do about 25 or so episodes per season. The first season, of course, is way more than 25, but... You know, ever since that first season, been trying to control, I guess for lack of a better term, how many are in each volume. So if people want to go back and find a particular podcast, it'll be easier for them to do it. Um, and, you know, it just kind of lays a marker for me as to how many uh, shows that I'm doing. And I've been fortunate enough to do over 200 so far. And um, and I appreciate all of you all who listen, uh, who give me encouragement to continue doing what I'm doing. Because encouragement is what is needed. I, um, I started this, as many of you know, because of my frustration with the previous president. And his lack of regards over the Constitution, his lack of regard for uh, national unity, his lack of regard for respect and dignity, as well as just being a competent person in the position. Um, he was overwhelmed by it. And instead of rising to the occasion, he sunk to as many lows as he could, including leading a insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on the day that they were going to confirm that he lost. And if you pay attention to these national meetings that a lot of these politicians go to, uh, this past weekend in CPAC, he basically declared to the audience that he was their retribution. As if <clears throat> losing a political election was a societal wrong, an injustice, if you will, that needed to be repaired or avenged, even. That's the rhetoric of the guy who actually took an oath and said that he was going to defend the constitution in this nation. It's only 35 words, but he's basically flipped those on his head and he continues to do so. And those people, <clears throat> excuse me, who affiliate with him, who support him, who are committed to his cause are not committed to the American cause and that's a hell of a statement for somebody that's african-american to say and i guarantee you that if one of our black leaders had gone on a national stage and said i'm your candidate for retribution 
the FBI, the CIA, and a whole bunch of other folks would be monitoring that candidate fairly closely. Not to say that the FBI and the CIA are not monitoring Donald Trump. I think they've been forced to. But the fact that the national media looks at it as just a speech as opposed to a threat highlights what a lot of us in the black community have been trying to tell you about white privilege. Because there's no way a person of color could get on a national stage and say he was he or she was the candidate for retribution. There's no way somebody from the LGBTQ community could get on the national stage and say, can you imagine Pete Buttigieg when he ran for president saying, I'm the candidate for retribution? Now, he didn't, he didn't go far in the presidential campaign as it was, but just imagine if he had said that. You know, controversial statements in presidential campaigns are Andrew Wang saying, I'm going to give $1,000 to every American. That's controversial because it's about an idea that we can debate. Saying that you're the candidate of retribution, that should be a, a, a cause for concern. And that should, in the minds of many people, millions of people, disqualify this man from ever sniffing the White House again, let alone being in office again. But that's where we are. And the strength of a Donald Trump being able to say that falls under a lot of things. I've already kind of touched on white privilege, right? That gives them that platform, that latitude to, to say things that nobody else could get away with saying. Like, I'm going to shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and still get votes. He proved that to be true. He actually won the election. He said that, right? But to... To really give him the juice, you have to have this synergy, right? This, this kind of force that's out there that allows somebody like him to even have any gravitas, to have any footing whatsoever. And a lot of, a lot of that is based on the thing that's on my mind this week is hypocrisy. And it's not just on the right. It's on the left. And that's where I'm going to start. So y'all remember I had this sister on named Patrice Sutton. And I wanted her on because she was doing something groundbreaking. For years, she had been working on reforming the criminal code in the District of Columbia. And if you remember in that conversation, we touched on D.C. statehood a little bit uh, and talked about how important it was for D.C. to have home rule. Well, that has come full circle because when when we did the interview, um, these, the CC, DC City Council had just basically accepted 
the reforms that she had worked on for all these years. They passed it and adopted it and said, this is, this is the path we're going to go. Now, since then, the mayor of the city of D.C. Uh, vetoed the plan. Uh, Muriel Bowser, the lady who allowed the street to be renamed, be renamed Black Lives Matter Boulevard and allowed that to be painted on the street. Uh, she voiced some concerns about uh, how the punishments were reassessed and how, you know, certain crimes were uh, given more teeth to them, right? And it was really just in Miss Sutton's mind and, and some of the members of the council a way to make things clearer so that when officers made an arrest and the courts and the prosecutors were making the case, that it would be defined what these people were being charged with, limit how many charges could be piled on just to make a case, and then it would be easy for judges and juries to make a determination as to whether that person should be convicted of that crime. And, I mean, there was a lot of stuff you had to go through, you know, years and years of just kind of mismatching stuff and, and finally putting together a comprehensive code that would make sense. Like I said, the council approved it basically unanimously. And so when the mayor vetoed it, they overrode the veto. However, DC is not a state. DC is a federal territory. Just like Puerto Rico is a territory, just like Guam is a territory, just like the U.S. Virgin Islands is a territory. And D.C. is unique because it's a territory strictly because the nation's capital sits in Washington, D.C. And that has been the argument about D.C. statehood is that you know, from a constitutional standpoint, from a historical standpoint, the founding fathers did not want to have one state to have the national capital. Although, initially, the nation's capital was in Princeton, well, in Nassau, New Jersey at one point, in Princeton, it was in New York City at one point, and that building uh, sat on Wall Street. Um you know, so I mean, it was, it, there have been cities, Philadelphia, for example, where all this stuff really started. <clears throat> all these cities have had the distinction of being the nation's capital at one point. And of course, then they made a compromise and carved out part of Maryland and part of Virginia to create this district, in which a black man, after the French guy, Lafont, abandoned the project out of frustration and lack of security of funds. This black man named Benjamin Banneker finished the project and laid out the outlines for this federal district, which we now call Washington, D.C. 
Anyway, a lot of y'all, especially those who live in D.C., already know that history. But there's some people that kind of get confused about the conversation. So, and of course, it's a big issue now because the majority of D.C., as we know it, is black and has been for a long time, especially after the Civil War. And those black slaves, yes, they were slaves in D.C., became citizens. As a matter of fact, the first act of reparations took place, well, the first collective act of reparations, because there was an individual sister in Massachusetts who successfully fought in the court to get reparations. Although she never received a dime, she won the case for her servitude. But in D.C., it was a federal act uh, when Lincoln basically outlawed slavery in D.C. There was a federal act to give reparations to those who owned slaves because they felt that they lost money by losing this property that now became human beings legally. So anyway, the District of Columbia. So what has happened over time is that Washington, D.C., the government in Washington, D.C. has been elected by the citizens of Washington, D.C., have been able to get home rule, meaning that they could make some decisions or a lot of decisions without congressional oversight. But there is a District of Columbia Oversight Committee in Congress still. Now, the delegate, of course, for D.C. sits on that committee, but that delegate doesn't chair the committee. That committee is chaired by members who have voting privileges on the floor because the delegate for DC does not have voting privileges on the floor. She can sit on the committees as Eleanor Holmes Norton. She can sit on the committees, but she doesn't have voting privileges just like the other delegates from other territories. So now that the Republicans are in charge They control the D.C. Oversight Committee. And without really even probably paying great attention to why D.C. wanted to reform its criminal code, it basically objected to it. And... And But there was another provision that gave them the latitude, and that was that people who were not citizens of D.C. could vote in certain elections. So, of course, you know, that just goes right to their... And I and I may not be because I'm not as familiar with that clause because that kind of got thrown into the debate at the last minute, because the focus has been on the criminal code being reformed. But whatever, when you're saying that people that are not residents of D.C. are not citizens or whatever, allowed to vote, well, 
you know, that, that raises the right all the way. And hopefully somebody listening to the podcast can kind of, cause I haven't been able to really find anything. I, I just hadn't looked that successfully, I guess, because all the focus on the story has been on the criminal code. But the Republicans, that was enough for them. And so they, they basically said that DC legislative package, they're, they're not in favor of it. Right. And then on the Senate side, you got Joe Manchin who basically is the swing vote still, uh, thanks to Christian cinema's maneuver per se on certain issues. And he's basically saying, yeah, it's a no go for us. Well, for me, uh, and his whole issue is strictly the criminal code reform. And even though Mayor Bowser has stepped in and said, hey, look, my objections to the code is a local concern. It's not the concern of the United States Congress. And I would urge Congress, since we have home rule and the city council has overridden my veto, I respect the override and ask that you pass the package. Nevertheless, they're using her arguments in the veto to kill the package. But that's not where the hypocrisy comes in, right? Although people can say, well, you know, it's hypocrisy that this city is majority black, it's not given authority or whatever. The, the hypocrisy comes in President Biden. So President Biden has campaigned and even championed when he was a member of the Senate and as vice president that D.C. should be a state. Although no steps were really ever taken other than legislative proposals, which every territory that seeks to become a state has to go through uh, because it's, it's treated like an amendment. It has to have a supermajority of both the House and the Senate to, well, I say supermajority, two-thirds. I believe that's right. I have to go back. It's either two-thirds or three-fifths. Either way it goes, it's more than 50%, 50 plus one, that a state has to be uh, in order for it to be ratified by Congress, right? And Joe Biden's been in favor of that. But on an issue which is really a local issue, it's for the District of Columbia's legal law enforcement arm to have a better handle on how to enforce laws and, and regulate in society that is known as Washington, D.C., um, Joe Biden says that he's not going to veto or, you know, the congressional action. He's not going to intervene in any way, shape, or form to uh, 
allow DC's criminal code to be reformed. So now we have a dilemma, which will probably end up in court and may make a decision before Congress does. And, you know, odds are not in favor of the citizens of DC with this Supreme court, but it could go through the federal court system to determine to what extent DC's home rule is right. And if that's the case, then it'll be interesting to watch. Because at that point, dominoes may fall and then Puerto Rico may follow suit and the Virgin Islands and Guam. And, you know, we could get like five new states out of this (laughs) over the next few years based on if this goes to court. And it probably should. Because this is not an issue that would have an impact on Iowa. It's not an issue that would have an impact on South Dakota. This is not an impact don't have any impact in Georgia or Mississippi or California or Oregon or any of the other states. This is about the Washington, D.C. This is the citizens of Washington, D.C. through their elected representation saying, hey, we want to change our criminal justice code. We want to make it make sense. And that nice, pretty white building off of Pennsylvania Avenue where they divide the city up in quadrants because of its location shouldn't have any say so as to us doing that. You know, you don't have any say so about what uniforms our police wear. You don't have any any say so about what cars they drive. You don't have any say so about the police budget per se. Or how much we pay our judges or our prosecuting attorneys. So why are you hung up on our code? What makes you think that you can say something about that? Because it's just as local as those other issues I just mentioned. But the hypocrisy to say that you are for DC statehood and then something as simple, I say simple, Overhauling anything is not really simple. And Miss Patrice can attest to that for the years that she put into it. But in retrospect, there these are citizens who want to reform something in their community. And you have these people who none of them are from there telling them that they cannot. Even the president of the United States who claims to understand why it's important for D.C. to have statehood. That's hypocritical to me. If you believe D.C. should have statehood, then D.C. should be able to change its criminal justice code, period. End of discussion. And no act of Congress should stop that from happening. And if you're in a position as the president to stop that act of Congress from taking place, then stop it. But don't go out here and campaign and say that you want to see black folks empowered and yet you deny a city that's majority black its right to even change its criminal justice code. 
Now, if they were doing something radical, like everybody goes free, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There won't be any crimes in D.C. or something. Uh, you might have some concern from national level, considering that your house is in that same city. But if you're talking about making it so that people are more effective in doing their jobs and citizens have a clear understanding of what is the law and what isn't, should have should let that go. You should let that happen. Let these people make that self-determination for themselves because that's the whole premise of D.C. statehood. It's an issue about self-determination. And if you're not about self-determination, then I cannot trust you on issues of reparations. I cannot trust you on issues about what's happening in Florida or what's happening in Mississippi. I can't trust you on that because this one is a layup compared to what you're going to deal with in those two states. As far as the black citizens having a true say-so, right? In determining for themselves. If you can't see it with a criminal justice code reform in D.C., I don't trust you to deal with them trying to carve out a part of Jackson, Mississippi so that white folks will have white leadership or people in Buckhead trying to carve out of Atlanta or the North Carolina legislature trying to take over airport or the Mississippi legislature for that matter in the black, in the black municipal city or in Florida where they don't even want you to read books written by black people. <laughs> I cannot trust you with that. And and it's nice that South Carolina is going to be the first primary. And, and I, I'm, I'm sure uh, James Clyburn is going to do everything for you to get those black folks to vote for you in South Carolina and all that. But I'm, I'm like, dude, this is why we can't really trust folks that ain't from our community to act in our community's best interest. And then you had the sister out there who I respect a lot being the voice saying, yeah, the president's not going to support DC city council and their government on this issue. Biden didn't come out of his mouth. It came from the sister, uh, uh, Pierre who, uh, made that announcement. So, You can understand why black folks, there are some black folks in the community who are very, very vocal, who are saying that, yeah, I don't trust the Democrats either. Because their argument is that the Democrats say they're on our side and we vote for them. And, you know, we, we've been giving our allegiance to them for decades now. And you say that the Republicans are so bad and this, that, and the other, but then on issues like this, you dropped a ball on it. Or you don't quite get it, or whatever your reason is. It does not look good to the black people who support you. 
It doesn't. And that's and that's that's painful to say as somebody who has been in leadership positions at the Democratic Party, who is basically whole political life has been as a Democrat. It's hurtful when that happens. But what I have always tried to do in me being a loyal Democrat is to use my position, use my voice to call out BS when I see it or call out hypocrisy when I see it, especially within my own ranks. And so that's what I'm doing today. I think it is very, very hypocritical for a person who says, I support D.C. statehood to not allow those very folks to determine laws that they passed unanimously. Even something as significant, well, especially something as significant, I should say, as reforming the criminal code. Now, if that criminal code is allowed to exist, will it be a model for other states? Maybe. Maybe. But that's something down the road. The immediate thing right now is that the citizens of D.C. through their elected representation said, this is what we want. And the folks that they don't vote for told them, except for the president, told them, no, you can't have that. And it's not the citizens' fault that the majority of the makeup is black. That's y'all's fault, white folks, because y'all brought all these black folks in to be servants and slaves. <laughs> and they had families. And so once D.C. became free, quotation marks, those black folks became citizens. And when they counted, they were in charge. And it took a hundred years for them to actually get a mayor, right? But at least you, you know, you got that. And at that point, you should have known the evolution was coming because the first mayor DC ever had, and as far as I know, the only race of people that's ever occupied that position have been African-Americans, males and females. So it is what it is, right? And D.C. is no different than any other city in the United States. You know, and, now we're, and, and the Republicans like to always highlight this fact. And that's going to lead into the second half, Republican hypocrisy and some other stuff. But, you know, in most of these major cities, political power has been conceded to the black community. But the financial power is still in the white community. And depending how diverse the city is, you know, you can have some other people of color being in, 
New York and Chicago about really, you can say Los Angeles, but you know, those three major cities, somebody other than a black person can be in charge. It's that, you know, New York and Chicago recently have had white mayors and Chicago may be on the verge of having a white mayor again now that Mayor Lightfoot has lost. But, you know, for all practical purposes in major urban cities, political power has been conceded to black folks or the white folks control the money. Here's what it is. And even if, if D.C. becomes a state, that might change some of the dynamics a little bit. But maybe not that much. Bottom line is, is that President Biden made a major mistake in not fulfilling his commitment to D.C. statehood. And yes, you, Mr. President, not supporting the District of Columbia City Council's effort to reform the criminal justice code is not supporting D.C. statehood. We'll keep it going on the other side. And so we are back. So, yeah, uh, Democrats can be hypocrites too. <laughs> my, my, my. And I, and I think that's why I'm going to call this podcast, My, 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 right? Because that song, in that song, not the Johnny Gill version, the, the house version, for those of you in Chicago that can relate. Uh because I asked the question, how do we get here? Where are we going to go? Right? And at the beginning of the last segment, I talked about uh, the rhetoric that Donald Trump was using about being the candidate of retribution. I think the actual candidate of retribution is Ron DeSantis, although he is not formally declared. He's running for president of the United States. Do not get confused. He has decided to make Florida the laboratory of fascism in the United States. And I say that not lightly. But when you start talking about banning books and determining what's being taught and denying people rights to vote and shall I go on? I mean, it's just, it's, it's pretty much the laboratory of fascism. And here's the scary thing, right? And see, this is what people have got to keep in context. So, Brian DeSantis was a history teacher. Understand. So, I, I equate Ron DeSantis to a professional gambler who literally thinks that because of his knowledge of gaming, 
that he's going to reshape the way that people gamble in the United States. He's going to flip the industry outside his head, right? Because he's got the formula, he's got the strategy to beat the house every time. That's what I think Ron DeSantis is. I think he's he thinks he's the best gambler in the world. In any casino he walks in, he's going to take all their money. Never mind the big fancy fountains and the prestigious luxury hotel and the shops and all these things there. When he walks in, he's going to take their money because he thinks because of his knowledge that he's more knowledgeable or more credible than the system. That's the way he looks at the United States Constitution and the Florida Constitution. Because, and I'm not a student of the Florida Constitution, but I'm sure that somewhere in the Florida Constitution, citizens have rights. Somewhere in there, citizens have rights. And there is a mechanism either through the legislative process or the judicial process where those folks can fight to protect them. Because you're sure not going to get any help from the executive branch, right? And it, and it looks like the legislative branch has abdicated on this responsibility too. Now, we had, you know, we, we, we know in Florida there are some brothers and sisters out there fighting the fight. We know that. And we know that they're outnumbered. We know in Mississippi that there are brothers and sisters fighting the fight. And we know that they are now numbered in the building in which they work at. And that's where the citizens have to come in. See, Ron DeSantis is banking on the fact that because he got reelected <clears throat> and the Florida legislature is gerrymandered so that he can have this overwhelming majority to push through all the crazy fascist stuff that he wants done. And they've been doing it since he's been there, right? Why stop now? That he can take this to a national stage. He, he even said, because he didn't go to the meeting that Donald Trump was speaking at. He went to the Reagan library. He basically said, Trump's a talker, but I'm a doer. And with the legislative session about to kick in in Florida, he's about to show you what he can do. I mean, they've already taken some steps, right? Uh, they basically told Disney, hey, you know, all those tax breaks, all those billions of dollars you brought to the state. We don't care about that. You know why? Because you had the audacity to say that I was wrong on an issue. You had the audacity to stand up for people and protect their rights. So we're going to show you what that means. Now, if I'm a corporation, not just in Florida, but in America, and my headquarters or significant 
divisions of my company are in these Republican states. If you're not cautious about it, you need to be. Because if Ron DeSantis is right, (laughs) if he's right, then he's going to influence other governors in those states to do exactly what he's doing. So the minute that you take a stand like the Georgia legislature passed an anti-gay bill, uh, disallowing businesses to discriminate against them and the business community, which primarily is centered in Atlanta, basically said, hey, uh, yeah, we're not in favor of that. then the governor vetoed it, right? He didn't necessarily politically want to, but on the other side, politically he had to, right? Because the Chamber of Commerce spoke. At least the biggest, most prominent members of the Chamber spoke and said, no, don't do that. You know, in Louisiana, when that legislature passed a uh, discriminatory bill and Governor Jindal you know signed it IBM built this brand new office space there and when they wanted to have the ribbon cutting IBM said no there's not going to be a ribbon cutting none of our executives are going to take a picture with you if you want to have a ribbon cutting on your own that's fine break a champagne bottle on the glass just don't break nothing or you're going to pay for that but yeah we're not doing a photo op with you because if we had known that that was the mindset of the folks in Louisiana then we wouldn't have built this multi-million dollar facility in the first place but that flip is about to change the the, the, the script is about to flip now it's about to change because see they see Ron DeSantis is going to do it to Disney. <laughs> and who's to say Republican governor is going to do to another major corporation? How about Texas? That might be a good place to look for the next one. Any of you corporations decide you're going to go against Greg Abbott on something, <sighs> Abbott might cut off your tax credits. Then you're going to have to start paying taxes. Then you're going to probably have to move to another state where you can get another sweetheart deal or whatever the case may be. But you're not going to move to a state that's got a Republican governor because they're going to do the same thing. And they're probably going to put in the clause that artfully limits your free speech as a corporation. See, corporations are treated as individuals for tax purposes and legal purposes, but you don't really have any free speech rights as a corporation. As the president of the corporation, as an individual, you do. Your board of directors as individuals do, but not speaking on behalf of the company, you don't have free speech rights. So individual rights doesn't hit you there. (laughs) And they don't take away your tax breaks. That's what Ron DeSantis is doing to Disney. And if he gets to be president of the United States, my, 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 Lord have mercy.
Jesus. If he gets to be president of the United States, I don't know if Wall Street can survive the hit. You may say, Fleming, that's hyperbole, brother. I mean, like, wow, you going there? Yeah. He looked a multi-billion dollar corporation. Y'all Marvel movies? That's Disney. Tinkerbell being black, Cinderella being black, the mermaid being black, that's Disney. Right? ESPN, that's Disney. Ron DeSantis told them, you don't go against me. I'm going to shut you down. Best way I know how. Take away your tax breaks. Now, I don't see Disney just up and moving the Epcot Center and everything out. But it's sure uh, it's going to make a dent in their bottom line. And there may be some dramatic things happening. Even though they're financially sound enough to absorb it, still going to hurt. And it's going to send shockwaves throughout the rest of the nation. Here's, here's where I'm really going with all of this. If you are somebody who still believes that there is a valid reason for a Republican Party in the United States. It cannot be as it is constituted now. Because your top two choices are either an anarchist or a fascist. Those are your top two choices. Because people get upset when you say, oh, well, you know, actions speak louder than words. You can call Democrats Nazis and demons. You can call other Republicans Nazis and demons. You can throw all those horrible terms out there if you want to. But if you are a governor and you have signed into a law saying books should be banned, that's fascism. If you have given a speech and based off of your speech, people went to the capital of the country and revolted, that's anarchy. Those are facts. Those things actually have happened. Even Fox News documented those things happened. Those things actually happened. So, now, it depends on which news outlet says that's okay or not. That's a whole other conversation. But factually, that act of fascism and that act of anarchy happened. So when I say Donald Trump is an anarchist, I have facts. When I say Ron DeSantis is a fascist, I have facts. Those are facts. And it's not popular to say it. It's probably not even safe to say it. But it's truth. 
And what has happened is because America, for whatever reason, call it apathy, call it being lethargic, or just not focused, are allowing these people free reign in our political domain, in a society in which we boast about, which we even bragged in November of last year that we protected democracy, right? These folks are still out there. And as long as they're still out there, they're going to have minions out there still trying to do their work, still trying to be disciples to these masters. And they're going to still push these agendas and they're going to push this legislation. They're, they're, they're still trying to take over school boards, y'all. They still have control over a majority of the state legislatures. They still have people in positions to regulate elections. They, are, they still have people that are governors that are ascribing to these thoughts, let alone activists, people out there in the community. There's a guy who has basically made his comedic career interviewing those people. And for the rest of the nation, we laugh at them, but those folks are serious. They are dead serious. And when I say dead, I mean, they will kill you serious because they buy into this notion that maybe we need a bit of anarchy. Maybe we need a bit of fascism so that we white people can maintain control. Now there's again, there are some white people who understand that this is a problem. And as the generations go by, there are more of them that understand that and understand that a nation that is diverse is not the end of the world or the end of America as we know it. There are actually people who understand that as this, um, I forget her name, Jane Elliott, I think her name is, um, who actually believe that instead of calling America a melting pot, we're a salad bowl. I feel that. Because every ingredient in that salad is distinct and it brings out the overall flavor of why you like that salad in the first place, right? That's what America is. And we, there are people that understand that. But there are a lot of Americans that do not. And there are some that are Hispanic. There are some that are Asian. There are some that are black. But the majority of them are white. And those folks under no circumstances want to see anybody advance but their own kind. If crime is in the inner city, fine. If it gets to the suburbs, it gets to where they live, it's a problem. That's why you got Marjorie Taylor Greene, got folks going up there crying about their children addicted to fentanyl and opioids and all that other stuff, right? But Marjorie Taylor Greene didn't give a damn 
not that she was in a political position to give a damn, but she she wouldn't give a damn about black folks in the inner city strung out on heroin and crack. She doesn't. Because in her mind, black people are lazy anyway. You heard that, right? So, you know, but again, that's Rome, Georgia's problem. <laughs> they, they keep bringing her, they keep electing her. That's their representative. If I don't have to stop for gas in Rome, Georgia, I will not be sad about it. There's, I don't, there's no reason if I get invited somehow, some way to speak at Barry College, I don't know if I'll go. Now, I don't know if anybody should go. That's of decency because that's in Rome, Georgia. Now, I'm not advocating a boycott, but me personally, if those people feel that Marjorie Taylor Greene is representative of them, because that's the whole concept of the House of Representatives, right? It's supposed to be electing people to represent their interest. If Marjorie Taylor Greene is in the interest of the people in Rome, Georgia, then Rome, Georgia ain't got nothing for me. Period. End of story, right? And we have to kind of really look at things that way. I mean, when Mississippi was flying that Confederate flag, they were people saying we're not going to have meetings there. Black organizations based in Mississippi deliberately did not have meetings in Mississippi <laughs> because of that flag. The black lawyers, the black doctors, the black accountants, all them folks were going somewhere else. Now, they were going to Florida. I don't know if they're going to go to Florida now. They might still. <laughs> but Ron DeSantis up there might be questionable. And then if he finds out that Mississippi black professionals are showing up in Florida, he might try to stop you from coming. I'm just saying, that's that's the environment we are in. As crazy as that sounds, do not be surprised if you see a headline with something crazy like that happening. Because every time you turn on the TV, every time you turn on your social media, whether it's through your phone or on the internet and your computer, whatever, you see stuff. You see bills being introduced. You see all this stuff happening. Never in my wildest dreams, as crazy as Mississippi has been throughout history, that I would think that the legislature would try to carve out the whitest part of Jackson and make it its own city with its own judicial district and its own prosecutors. Really? So let me see if I get this right. Because, you know, they, they claim that this is needed for overload. What overload? If a person could, Eastover is better protected than Buckhead. The folks in Buckhead in, in, in Atlanta are saying the police are not doing anything because there have been shootings there, there's been robberies and stuff, and the police in Atlanta not responding. Never heard that in Eastover. Never. Never heard of anybody convicted or, I mean, arrested of a crime in Eastover being given a slap on the wrist at the Hines County Courthouse. Never heard that happen. You even had a guy who was a former councilman sitting on a bench. <laughs> right? 
Even the white boy who who murdered his girlfriend, he went before that 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 judge and he got life. He got convicted. So it wasn't it wasn't a matter about justice not being served. The only reason why there's any backlog anywhere in the United States judicial system is because of COVID. And it took a while for courthouses to get their act together and convince judges to show back up in the building. That's why it's a backlog. It has nothing to do with black leadership. Nothing. And the only reason why that same Mississippi legislature is trying to take over the airport and take over the water system now. Huh. Imagine that is because there's money there now. See the, the airport was the moneymaker and that's kind of hit the back burner, but they still, they still are entertaining the idea. Don't, don't get it twisted. That's still out there. But the water system, now that the federal government has infused all this money in, well, now these white Republicans are like saying, oh, well, you know, uh, maybe we ought to have some say-so. No, because it was because of you and your lack of giving a damn about the city of Jackson, even when you had white Democrats in power, you ignored us because I was part of the Jackson delegation at one time. You ignored us when we said, hey, we need more money in Jackson so we can do X, Y, and Z. Primarily make sure that we have enough money so we can upgrade our infrastructure, including our water system. But you ignored us. You just put us off. Then when a real crisis happened, oh, well, and the federal government had to intervene, oh, well, now, you know, da 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 we, we might need to, you know, Make sure that this money's being spent. The reason why it was it, it even got to a point because you we got some legislation passed, and I was out of the legislature by then, so I can't say we we. But the Jackson delegation got legislation passed to say, okay, we we create this tax, but the white folks said, eh, we might need to oversee how the revenue is being spent. So while that machination is going on, the infrastructure is still crumbling. Now we got a crisis. We get a federal rescue plan. Oh, well, you know, all these millions of dollars, surely we can't trust black leadership to handle that. And to top it all off, since they, we figured that they can't manage the water system, why don't we just carve out the widest part of the city and make it its own judicial district. So that would make that judicial district the smallest judicial district in the state of Mississippi. That's number one. Number two, in proportion to the population that the that, that district attorney would have, he would be the highest, he or she would be the highest paid district attorney in the state of Mississippi because he is getting or she's getting the same salary as a district attorney for the judicial district we know as Hines County. And be getting so in proportion is highest paid. Right. 
but that's not a problem with them. The problem with them is that these poor white folks who have decided to stay in Jackson, by the way, let's make this clear. There is nothing, there is no electric fence or wall or anything stopping those folks from being like their cousins and their college classmates and all that stuff and going to Ridgeland or Madison or Pearl or Brandon or Clinton or wherever they can leave. They, they, if he's financially, if they live in Eastover, they probably got the financial means to live anywhere they want to. They choose to stay here and they vote for the black leadership in the city. Cause whether there are options, <laughs> they vote for the black leadership. It's no different for me being a Democrat living in the city of Clinton with all Republican council members and a mayor. If I want to vote in municipal elections, I got to vote for one of them. Now, they say it's nonpartisan, but you know, right? I mean, same thing. It's that same mentality that's going on. It's about bringing back segregation it's about controlling people and it's about raising holy hell through violent means if we don't get what we want that was the playbook prior to 1964 until the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act became into effect 64 and 65 the rule of the day and all those Supreme Court cases leading up to that, the rule of the day was white folks give what they want. They control what you can or do, say or do. And if folks decide that they want to challenge that, we'll burn their houses, we'll burn crosses, we'll hang them on trees, we'll shoot them. Now, when you see that in other parts of the world in our enlightened 21st century minds, we say that's terrorism. In the world that my dad was fortunate enough to avoid but had to visit every summer, and for those Mississippians and Alabamans and Georgians and Floridians and Carolinians and Tennesseans and Arkansans and Louisianans, I think that's right, Louisianians, that stayed, those black folks. And by the way, half of the, more than half of the black population in America lives in those states, right? That was a way of life for their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. That terrorism, that we know from history happened. And yet we give a platform to politicians like Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and others of their ilk who want to bring that back and dismiss it as all oh, political rhetoric and speech or whatever. We know 
what is in the hearts and minds of these people. They wear it on their sleeves. They voice it out loud. They're not in some locker room. They're not in some clubhouse. They are on public stages in state capitals, in party dinners, wherever they're allowed to speak, and and basically trying to usher in that moment. And, you know, critics of black people say, or black activists specifically say, well, you know, that's just, again, that's far-fetched. You're being hyperbolic. You're, you're exaggerating. That's not the case. That's what they said before until the modern age of television news kicked in and they were broadcasting that stuff. People up north, people out west didn't believe that they were using dogs to attack protesters until they saw it on their TV screens. They didn't believe all those reports that Ida B. Wells was writing about lynching until they saw the pictures in the newspapers. They dismissed it. And as Dr. King, who a lot of white folks now want to say, oh, was this great man and all that, the people of his generation ignored him. And he said, those folks who are silent are more dangerous than the people that I confront every day. People who are dismissive about Ron DeSantis and what he's doing, people who are dismissive about Donald Trump and what he is saying and doing are no different than the clergy that Dr. King admonished from a Birmingham jail. None. Not the media, not the political people, not the average citizen. If you are serious, doesn't matter if you're black, if you identify as black, white, and I have to say identify, because this other sister, which I don't really have time to get into, but this other sister who had identified as Muslim and working in the community for years and years, her mom came out and said, hey, she's white, guys. I hate to tell you that. So she had to resign her position, right? So since we're identifying, if you identify as black, white, Asian American Pacific Islander, Latino, through heritage or whatever. If you are an American citizen, if you are working here in America on a visa, if you are going to school in America on a visa, if you are seeking citizenship as a permanent resident, basically everybody, I need y'all to pay attention. We do not need to give these people, I don't give a damn what they claim in the First Amendment. Because at some point in time, history has to kick in because freedom of speech is supposed to be for the benefit of society, not to harm it, not to cause chaos, not to create violence. There is a responsibility. And the guy's name was George Mason. I couldn't remember last week. It was George Mason who had written original draft, who actually 
wrote the original, what we like to call Second Amendment now, under Madison, but he wrote the first amendment to say that people should bear arms and there was responsibility attached to it, right? So if you really want to go there, we can go there with that, right? You know, but the Second Amendment says no right, this right shall not be infringed. Actually, all of the Bill of Rights should not be infringed, especially the first. Because we talk about assembly, we talk about religion, but more importantly, speech. And they say, well, Fleming, if you do that, look, if you are trying to harm black people with your political rhetoric, if you think that banning books falls under your First Amendment right, I've got some news for you, son. That's wrong. The reason why we are different than other countries is because we codified the fact that you can't be doing that. Because those authors had the same rights you got. You may not recognize it, but they do. Those citizens in Jackson, no matter whether they live in Eastover or Lakeover, they have the same rights. And they elect the same people. And they should be respected at that and leave them alone if they didn't ask for it. The citizens of Jackson voted for their leadership to make decisions, including their water infrastructure. Leave them alone. Worry about what they elected you all to do which is to look out for the best interest of the state, not the best interest of white people in the state. And that that goes for Florida. That goes for Georgia. That goes for Illinois. That goes for New York. That goes for all 50 states, D.C., Puerto Rico, Guam, the Virgin Islands, American Samoa. People elect you to look out for them collectively, not a certain segment of them. So I'm asking people of goodwill from all over to take it upon yourselves to figure out a way to stop the madness. to stop these voices from having credibility because we cannot go through another period again where folks feel as though that they can violently overthrow a government or violently stop people from exercising their rights as citizens. We cannot go through a period where we are banning books. We cannot go through a period where we are telling people that they can't access certain things because of who they are. Especially who they want to express their love to. Really? How pert? Why do you even care? Why do you care? If, if you are not black, if you are not gay, if you are not Asian, if you are not Latino, why do you care? You can't say it's about money because you will spend money to buy their records 
or watch their TV shows or their movies. You are entertained. So why does it make a difference how they live? I think it'd be good if people were allowed to upgrade their neighborhoods that you historically redlined and all that. I think it'd be good for economic opportunities for people all over. But outside of them making money, why do you care how they live or how they identify themselves or who they physically are by God's grace? Why would you care? Unless you have a nefarious notion to be in control. And political control to the extent that an anarchist and a fascist want to view the world is nefarious in nature, period. A true democracy or a true democratic republic in which the United States is allows its citizens to move around freely. And as long as they are not doing anything to harm other people to make money, they should be allowed to live the lives they want to live. They should be able to shop where they want to shop, travel where they want to travel, read what they want to read, listen to what they want to listen to. Worship however they want to worship. Love however they want to love. Period. If you really are a defender of the Constitution, then you need to repudiate I'm talking to the anarchists, fascists, and all those supporters. You need to repudiate that kind of thinking and go back to understanding and adhering to what the Constitution is, what the Bill of Rights are, what your state constitutions even say. Because most of y'all state constitutions say that public education is a right, not a privilege. So let's start there and making sure that no matter what happens, we're going to take care of educating our children. Right? It's just basic things that is part of the responsibility of being a true American. Just because you wear red, white, and blue and, you know, you know the words to Lee Greenwood's song and all that stuff doesn't make you a patriot. Not discriminating against people, not telling people what they can read, right? Not telling people who can come in and out of your business. If they haven't robbed you, they came to spend money, let them spend money. My, my, my. Until next time.